Number 523 was asked that we mark that and use that a bit later in the lesson tonight. And as has been the case the last couple of weeks, I suppose again a word of appreciation and thanks to uh, Adams and others of our young men who helped get our screen and our picture and our presentation looking as it has at least in the past, and certainly thankful for the talent and skills and ability of so many who are so freely allowing themselves to be used in that way to help us make the presentation that, that, that we would like to do during the course of the, of the worship services. In our study of the book of Job, as we continue that particular series of studies tonight, we have already reached far into the book, and tonight chapters 15 through 21 will be our particular chapters of consideration. You might notice that some of our lessons have involved a lesser number of chapters than tonight, but this particular section of chapters falls in a particular section that involves matters we've looked at at least in passing previously, but we will strive to highlight and point to some of those interesting features and facts stated by some of these speakers during these chapters. In fact, it might well be appropriate to notice some of the thoughts that have brought us already to this point. As the book of Job commenced, we noticed the first two chapters were somewhat of an introductory prologue. We learned that Job was a very wealthy man of the East, but that great calamity came upon him because of a discussion or conversation that began between he and God, or between Satan and God. Ultimately, that meant that Job lost his children, his possessions as well, as a number of other features, including his health even. All the while, we began in chapter 3 by noting that Job first highlighted the grief that he was experiencing, the difficulty of his situation. Then in chapter number 4, friends who had come his way began to converse with him. And one by one, we first noticed Eliphaz and what he had to say to Job, and then Job replied to him. And then next, Bildad had something to say to Job, and then Job replied to him. And thirdly, Zophar had something to say to Job, and then Job replied to him. Although some of their thoughts were slightly different, in many ways their basic and underlying consideration was that God is a God of justice. And because He is a God of justice, He will not, in fact, lay the kind of things upon Job unless Job had been guilty of something. And thus, in their mind, Job was guilty. Perhaps he was simply not willing to admit it. And that being the case, they thought he was a hypocrite. However, Job always defended himself. And in fact, he asked the friends, Do not be so general. You tell me exactly what it is, and I will be happy to, in fact, make note of that and strive to come unto my heavenly Father. However, they were unwilling and unable to do that. That brings us then to not only the close of that first cycle of speeches, but in fact the beginning of the second cycle. Now each of the friends again address Job, and they do so one by one, and they do so in the same order that they had done it before. First is Eliphaz, and then Job will reply to him. And then there's Bildad, and then Job will reply to him. And finally again Zophar will speak, and Job will reply to him. In some cases, their thoughts are similar to the ones that they had mentioned previously, but sometimes they strengthen their argument and they try to even make a stronger case than what they had said before. With all that perhaps as at least a brief introduction, let's come tonight to look first of all at what Eliphaz says on this second attempt that he has as he addresses Job. In chapters 15 through 17, 
we find that Eliphaz not only addresses Job, but then Job replies. And thus, let's highlight this particular three-chapter section first during the lesson tonight and see what Eliphaz had to say on this second occasion. In chapter 15, verses 2 and 3, what a powerful beginning to what Eliphaz had to say. These were his words. Should a wise man utter vain knowledge and fill his belly with the east wind? Should he reason with unprofitable talk or with speeches wherewith he can do no good? Eliphaz directly accused Job of merely speaking as if he were the wind and furthermore that he had spoken without an understanding of knowledge. You can see yet again with me that Eliphaz had no good thoughts to share at this point by attempting to compliment Job. Rather, he accused him yet again. Look at what some of the other things were that he shared. In verse number 6, Thine own mouth condemneth thee, and not I. Yea, thine own lips testify against thee. Eliphaz claimed that the very things that Job had replied and answered to all of them to this point, they themselves, properly interpreted, condemned himself. Eliphaz thought that basically Job had condemned his own self by the things he had said and the way he had said it. They thought that Job was a bit arrogant, somewhat pompous, unwilling to admit the plain truth in front of him. They thought he was basically a deceiver. As you can imagine, one of the other things to notice in verse 20 is this one. Notice what else Eliphaz had to say to Job. And might we remember that he was supposedly a friend of Job's. Verse 20 says, The wicked man travaileth with pain all his days, and the number of years is hidden to the oppressor. A dreadful sound is in his ears, and the prosperity that the destroyer shall come upon him. At this point, Eliphaz asserted, Job, it's the wicked who suffer the way you're suffering, and thus, isn't it obvious? You obviously are a wicked man. He is labeled as one among the oppressors. He's labeled as one amongst the unbelievers. He's labeled as one who, in fact, had stepped far aside from the truth of God's revelation. Amazing, isn't it, as this somewhat lengthy chapter closes in verses 34 and 35. Eliphaz finally concludes with this, For the congregation of hypocrites shall be desolate, and fire shall consume the tabernacles of bribery. They conceive mischief and bring forth vanity, and their belly prepareth deceit. It may be that as we contemplate a friend like Job seemingly had, it's no wonder that Job was frustrated. And it's no wonder that in their words and in their statements, he has found so little that's good and so little that has been helpful. In fact, that directly brings us to Job's response in chapter 16. After sitting through yet a second of Eliphaz's speeches, isn't it amazing that Job begins like this? Verses 2 and 3 of chapter 16. I have heard many such things. Miserable comforters are ye all. Shall vain words have an end? Or what emboldeth thee that thou answerest? I also could speak as ye do. If your soul were in my soul's stead, I could heap up words against you and shake mine head at you. But I would strengthen you with my mouth, and the moving of my lips should assuage your grief. Though I speak, my grief is not assuaged, 
and though I forbear, what am I eased? Job said, you three are miserable comforters. He said, in your language and in your words and in your speech, there is nothing that ultimately would meet the cause you're trying to make. And you, in fact, have fallen far short of what would be expected of those that would try to comfort anyone. You'll notice also in verse number 4, Job says, I could speak like you do. And he went on to say, if our roles were reversed, I would at least attempt in honesty, in truthfulness, and sincerity to rightly appreciate your state and to utter that which would factually strive to assist you. Job says, you have not done that. You seem to have a vendetta out against me and my name, and your sole desire is to accuse me without any knowledge of the facts of the case and without a true understanding of what it is that are the things that have come upon me, my family, and the state of grief that has surrounded us. Job's words, as you can see, had ramped upward somewhat in intensity as he, in fact, addressed Eliphaz this second time. However, Job had even more to say. As you'll notice also in verse number 11, God hath delivered me to the ungodly and turned me over into the hands of the wicked. I was at ease, but he hath broken me asunder. He hath also taken me by my neck and shaken me to pieces and set me up for his mark. His archers compassed me round about. He cleaveth my reins asunder and doth not spare. He poureth out my gall upon the ground." That's only a sampling of some of what Job again stated as it reflected upon the terrible plight that he found himself in. As he here stated all these calamities and afflictions that had come upon him, he again stated that obviously this has happened with the permissive capability of God. He could have prevented it, but he didn't. Job didn't understand why these things had come upon him, but he knew that it wasn't due to overt sin in his life as his friends accused. I suppose all of us can at least imagine that Job for this period of time was in a very difficult situation at least because he didn't know about the conversation between God and the devil. He didn't know about what prompted all of this. All he knew was that his friends were not correct. As we noted in our lesson last Sunday evening, Job wasn't haughty enough to claim he had all the answers. He just knew he didn't know all of what he wished he did know at this time. Also, as this chapter rolls forward, in verses 18, 19, and 20, it reads, O earth, cover not thou my blood, and let, me cry, and let my cry have no place. Also now, behold, my witness is in heaven, and my record is on high. My friends scorn me, but mine eye poureth out tears unto God. Oh, that one might plead for a man with God as a man pleadeth with his neighbor. When a few years are come, then I shall go the way whence I shall not return. Job there said yet once more time that he wished someone could plead to God for his case just like a man would plead and intercede with a friend. We noticed earlier that he wished for a daysman in chapter 9, verse 33. This is another statement of Job's sincerity in which he wished for one who could serve as a mediator for him. But alas, at this point, chapter 16 closes and opens chapter 17. Again, Job speaks. He continues his response to Eliphaz, and he does so in these words. 
in verse number 9, The righteous also shall hold on his way, and he that hath clean hands shall be stronger and stronger. But as for you all, do ye return and come now? For I cannot find one wise man among you. As Job addressed his friends, he again straightforwardly said, There isn't a wise man among you in terms of what you have shared with me. Verse number 11, My days are past, my purposes are broken off, even the thoughts of my heart. And finally, verse number 16, They shall go down to the bars of the pit when our rest together is in the dust. Job again seems to recognize that this affliction has gone on so long. He is again beginning to wonder if there shall be any release until the time of his own death. Perhaps it would be not until after that time when all the ease comes for the faithful that he then finally would experience a release from the terrible affliction that had come with his physical sores upon his body. As that chapter closes, Job has responded to Eliphaz. Next up to the plate, if you please, is Bildad in chapter 18. What does Bildad have to say? Does he also build upon what he had shared before, or does he change his argument? You'll notice as we start with Bildad in chapter 18, we'll find that Job replies to him in chapter 19. It begins in chapter 18, verses 2 and 3. Again, Bildad makes these claims. How long will ye ere make an end of words? Mark, and afterwards we will speak. Wherefore are we counted as beasts and reputed vile in your sight? Bildad has the nerve to begin by saying, Job, how can you question or doubt what we have said? Job, isn't it obvious that we, by careful consideration and analysis, have shared with you the thing that clearly is correct, and yet... You don't regard what we say. You do not think that our speech is right. You'll notice beyond that, the chapter quickly turns in this direction. In verses 4 and following, He teareth himself in his anger. Shall the earth be forsaken for thee, and shall the rock be removed out of his place? Yea, the light of the wicked shall be put out, and the spark of his fire shall not shine. The light shall be dark in his tabernacle, and his candle shall be put out with him. The steps of his strength shall be straightened, and his own counsel shall cast him down. For he is cast into a net by his own feet, and he walketh upon a snare. Pausing there, we begin to see a similarity between this and Bildad's earlier speech. Job, one by one, all the things are lined up, and the conclusion is obvious. You must have erred. Notice it's the wicked whose light is put out. And what state do you find you're in, Job? Isn't your light about put out? You've lost your family. You've lost your possessions. You've lost your health. What else could there be? How much longer will you deny what is the obvious? Bildad goes on and strengthens his argument. And he does so beginning in verse number 9. The gin shall take him by the heel, and the robber shall prevail against him. The snare is laid for him in the ground and a trap for him in the way. Terror shall make him afraid on every side and shall drive him to his feet. Now, moving to verse 17. His remembrance shall perish from the earth and he shall have no name in the street. He shall be driven from light into darkness and chased out of the world. He shall neither have son nor nephew among his people nor any remaining in his dwellings. 
They that come after him shall be astonished at his day, as they that went before were affrighted. Surely such are the dwellings of the wicked, and this is the place of him that knoweth not God. We find here yet again, Bildad says by conclusion, Job, the things that you are suffering are the things that happen to those that don't know God. And it's the things that happen to those that are the wicked. Isn't it as clear as the nose on your face, the cause of what's brought you to this point? What does Job have to reply in verse 19? In this chapter, we again appreciate that Job very clearly gets to the heart of the matter very quickly. I've asked you to notice carefully beginning in verse 2. How long will you vex my soul and break me in pieces with words? These ten times have you reproached me. Ye are not ashamed that ye make yourself strange to me. And be it indeed that I have erred, mine error remaineth with myself. If indeed ye will magnify yourselves against me and plead against me my reproach, know not that God hath overthrown me and hath compassed me with his net. We notice that Job here replies, If I have erred, it is not your business per se, but rather my error is not to the degree and level that you have claimed. Amazingly, as Job reaches an interesting point in this chapter, we find something remarkably new in his language. I've asked us to highlight that beginning in verse 11. He hath also kindled his wrath against me, and he counted me unto him as one of his enemies. His troops came together and raised up their way against me and encamped round about my tabernacle. He hath put my brethren far from me, and mine acquaintance are verily estranged from me. My kinsfolk have failed, and my familiar friends have forgotten me. That's one of the first hints we have that there apparently were other family members who estranged themselves from Job. Sometimes in life when all is well, we have lots of friends and lots of people that would like to befriend us. But when times are hard, it is then sometimes we find many will flee from us. They are not interested in having to assist or help or labor or work in some way. Job says even his kinfolk apparently had forsaken him. They'd forgotten him. They had not been there to help and to assist even when calamity had come. Verse 15 says, They that dwell in mine house and my maids count me for a stranger. I am an alien in their sight. Even the ones that formerly were servants in his house now had nothing to do with him. They too had counted him an alien. Job had been estranged by all and apparently that even included his wife. Even she, perhaps, no longer would stand by his side and provide the assistance and encouragement you might have thought that a spouse would. No wonder Job was almost a lonely man. We've learned he lost his children. We've now learned his servants and perhaps even his wife. And now his friends come and you might have thought at the last resort they could have been helpful and even they stood at the door to accuse him. Who else could Job turn to? Where would he find any additional encouragement in the human family? As the chapter proceeds, we notice at verse number 18, Yea, young children despised me. I arose and they spake against me. Apparently the children in the community, perhaps at a distance, they would accuse and laugh and insult Job. Look at that man. 
what once he had and now he is in the dung hills of living. Note the next verse. All my inward friends abhorred me, and they whom I loved are turned against me. Those who you might have thought in life that would stand by him did not. No wonder we, you and I have often in the Holy Scriptures observed Elijah on one occasion thought he was all alone, but God had to remind him there are seven others, 7,000 others that hadn't bowed the knee to Baal. 1 Kings chapter 19. But we find Job here virtually was all alone. His friends, his family, his maidens, his servants, none of them. You'll notice that he says in verse 20, My bone cleaveth to my skin and to my flesh, and I am escaped with the skin of my teeth. Have pity upon me, have pity upon me, O my friends, for the hand of God hath touched me. Why do ye persecute me as God, and are not satisfied with my flesh? At this point, we reach verses 25 and 26, which is the reading that was read in our hearing earlier tonight. For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that He will stand at the latter day, and though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. And I must confess, it seems to me, that there is a remarkable attribute of hopefulness in that passage. Though all on earth had forsaken Him, He knew that in the great and latter and final day, finally He'd stand before God, even after the worms had long since eaten and decayed the body. Job spoke about a resurrection, didn't he? He knew that there was coming a time He would stand, not enclouded with sores and a body that was mangled in, in such pain and agony, but yet He could stand before God and enjoy a situation of resurrection. In fact, we will discuss that more thoroughly a bit later in the lesson tonight. But for now, chapter 20 comes before us. Time for the third speaker. What does Zophar have to say? As you'll notice, a few brief comments again about Zophar and also about the response that Job would make to him brings us to these thoughts. First of all, in verse number 5 of chapter 20, Zophar says, and let's begin reading in verse 4. Knowest thou not this of old, since man was placed upon earth, that the triumphing of the wicked is short, and the joy of the hypocrite is but a moment? Though his excellency mount up to the heavens, and his head reach into the clouds, yet he shall perish forever like his own dung. They which have seen him shall say, Where is he? Zophar now returns to the basis, Job, do you simply not see what is so evident? It is the wicked who, in fact, are those unaccepted by God. It's the unrighteous or the ones who are afflicted and suffering this way. And Job, this is common knowledge. Since the first people were on earth, this is well known. At this point, Zophar continues. In verses 9 and 10, The eye which... Also shall see him, shall see him no more, neither shall his place any more behold him. That is to say, things will crumble around the wicked. God won't let them stand, but rather he will chastise and he will remove by his own justice what they formerly had enjoyed. Verse 10, His children shall seek to please the poor, and his hands shall restore their goods. His bones are full of the sin of his youth, which shall he lie down in the dust. 
Though wickedness be sweet in his mouth, though he hide it under his tongue, though he spare it and, for, and forsake it not, but keep it still within his mouth. Zophar again is accusing directly Job of wickedness yet again. That wickedness is perhaps highlighted as we notice the fact of verses 19 and 20. Because he hath oppressed and hath forsaken the poor, because he hath violently taken away an house which he builded not, Surely he shall not feel quietness in his belly. He shall not save that of which he desired. There shall none of his meat be left. Therefore shall no man look for his goods. In the fullness of his sufficiency he shall be in straits. Every hand of the wicked shall come upon him. And maybe at that point enough has been said, for Zophar's thought is clear enough. He's used the word wicked so many times already. In his mind, the case was open and closed. In chapter 21, Job replies to Zophar's claim. And in this chapter, we notice that it begins as follows. Verse number 2. Hear diligently my speech, and let this be your consolations. Suffer me that I may speak, and after that I have spoken, mock on. Isn't it interesting that Job says, You can mock on, but let me at least have my say. Verse number 4, As for me, is my complaint to man? And if it were so, why should not my spirit be troubled? Mark me and be astonished, and lay your hand upon your mouth. Job asks his friends to carefully consider what they had said. This might be a fair time for us to remember even ourselves that our speech and our language is exceedingly important. In Matthew chapter 12, verses 36 and 37, didn't Jesus say that every man shall give account thereof in the day of judgment for the things he has spoken? He shall give account even of the idle words that he has in fact announced. Doesn't that remind us that just like Job's friends, we must be cautious and always let it be so that our speech is seasoned with grace, with salt as it will, Colossians 4 verse 6, and in the language of Ephesians 4.29, Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. Did Job's friends minister grace to Job? Obviously not. Thus they were chastised here by Job for their language that was improper. As you look at chapter 21 with me, Job makes a rather obvious statement in verse 16. He puts it in these words. He, lo, their good is not in their hand. The counsel of the wicked is far from me. How oft is the candle of the wicked put out? And how oft cometh their destruction upon them? God distributeth sorrows in His anger. That's Job's interesting way of making this argument. He basically asked his friends, Do you not understand that sometimes the righteous suffer just like the wicked do. He says it is not an open and closed argument. Just because a person is suffering does not mean that they are wicked. Our Lord joined in that chorus powerfully, didn't He, in the ninth chapter of John. When there, there were those who came before Him, speaking of a man that had been born blind, and they directly asked our Savior, Who sinned, him or his parents, so that he was born blind? You see, there were those even in the Lord's day who were under the impression that something bad has happened to this man. Was it his sin that caused it? 
Or was it his parents singing? Jesus said, neither one. You see, the righteous also suffer just like the wicked do in some ways in this world. Thus, the friends didn't understand one of the most basic realities of life. It's true that God lets His sun shine on both the righteous and on the wicked, and He allows the rain to fall on both as well. But it's also true that the righteous do suffer persecutions. 2 Timothy 3.12 And yea, all who will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecutions. And isn't it true from Hebrews the 12th chapter beginning in verse 9 that the chastisement that comes upon the righteous sometimes is far from pleasant, especially verses 11 and 12 of that chapter. For all those reasons, Job presented an argument to them they weren't easily ready to answer. Thus, in conclusion, in verses 23 on to verse 31, we find these interesting thoughts. One dieth in his full strength, being wholly at ease and quiet. His breasts are full of milk, and his bones are moistened with marrow. And another dieth in the bitterness of his soul, and never eateth with pleasure. They shall lie down alike in the dust, and the worm shall cover them. Job says, Friends, do you not realize that death comes to both? Both the wicked and the righteous are going to die. And thus, this calamity that has come upon me is not a certainty that I have been wicked. You'll notice in verse 31, Who shall declare his way to his face? And who shall repay him what he hath done? Yet shall he be brought down to the grave, and shall remain in the tomb. The clods of the valley shall be sweet unto him, and every man shall draw after him, as there are innumerable before him. How then comfort ye me in vain, seeing in your answers there remaineth falsehood. That statement of verse 34 sums up much of what we've said interestingly, doesn't it? Job says, there is falsehood in your answers, friends. The things stated by Bildad, Zophar, and Eliphaz, he says, there's been no comfort in it because you have spoken that which is false. And with that, the curtain closes on chapter 21. This second cycle of speeches has touched on a number of valiant points and a number of thorough accusations. From them, many lessons might be drawn, and our time will permit us to only extract a couple of them. I've, only, I've already highlighted what the second one is, but let's look at the first one first. There was a point in this in which the argument was made that there is a release to be found in death. Recall that at one point Job made the conclusion that perhaps I shall no longer have any ease in this life and only when death comes will I finally enjoy some ease because in that I can lift up the power of my spirit following the nature of this physical body's demise and enjoy a time of tranquility, of peacefulness, and ease. That would be a very good thought for all of us to consider. In fact, in this particular day and time, we each have read the news and we're aware that there are times when individuals in this life will take their own life because circumstances in their mind become so extreme, they become so hard, and they become so difficult that in their eyes the only release is to take their own life and seemingly enjoy or rest what comes hereafter. I would ask that we note there's a question mark after that. Is there release to be found in death? 
Is that something that does bring a release from all the pain and all the anguish and all the turmoil and difficulties that may cloud this life? Let's think about that for just a moment. Again, in Job 17, that statement was found. Might we quickly say that the end of the matter is that there are two potential varieties of death, aren't there? It's true that if one dies in the Lord, there indeed is rest to be enjoyed. It is a time when all the labors and all the difficulties of this life have been left behind and those famous words of Revelation 14, 13 are certainly so appropriate. Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works do follow them. So we have the absolute statement of Scripture that for those that die in the Lord, indeed there is rest. And indeed there is a release from all the labors, the toils, and the woes of this life. But it still is to be noted. What about those that die not in the Lord? Is there any promised rest for them? Is there promised release for those who would die outside the precious confines of the ark of safety of our, of our Savior? The Scriptures, in fact, hold no such illusion. In 2 Thessalonians 1, beginning in verse 7, it was the inspired apostle who put it in these words. He reminded the church in Thessalonica about the nature of this very subject before us tonight. To you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and obey not the gospel of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. And there we notice, there certainly then is no release for those that die outside the Lord. In fact, there's mention of vengeance. There's mention of eternal punishment. There's mention, of, in fact, of a far worse state than they ever had here upon earth. And thus, the release that is to be enjoyed in death is only for the righteous. And that's the promised beauty to be found so often within the pages of the New Testament. Is it any wonder that Paul could say in 2 Timothy 1 verse 12, I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. Three chapters later, he would say, beginning in verse 6 of chapter 4 of 2 Timothy, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of life, which the Lord the righteous judge shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all of them also that love is appearing. Oh, how sweet words those are for those that are righteous. But oh, what terrible words are those others in the Thessalonian letter for those that are the ungodly. But perhaps the second thought, and the two are in some sense tied together, takes us back to the closing words of chapter 19. There again in verses 25 and 26, Job, in the ancient day of the long ago, made reference to a resurrection. Made reference to a resurrection. Quite frankly, that opening statement is, I think, to be noted. You and I know that the New Testament teaches so clearly about the resurrection. However, the 39 Old Testament books do not present it nearly as clearly. It seems to have been somewhat more veiled, somewhat more concealed, if you please. It certainly would seem that the patriarchs knew about it, and it would certainly seem that others like Job were well aware of it. 
But in terms of a clear and often teaching of the Old Testament, it just isn't there. Doesn't that remind us, though, of just how special is the doctrine of the, of the resurrection? The specialist perhaps is seen as you look at just a handful of verses. And at least in my study, there aren't too many more than them. It is true in 2 Samuel 12, verses 13 and 14, David said, speaking of that baby that was born to he and Bathsheba, that baby that died not long after its birth, David did say on that occasion, I shall go to him, he shall not come to me. That's the clearest words I can find in the things of David, that he knew that he was still going to see that baby again. And he knew that he was going to go to where the baby is. The babe was not going to come back to him. Furthermore, we notice the words in Daniel 12, verse 2, where Daniel recognized the reality of the resurrection. When he said also in such powerful language that there would come another day when he would arise long after he had been dead and enjoy again the greatness and countenance of his heavenly Father. He knew too there would be a resurrection. How thankful you and I can be that the New Testament is so clear that even though time may last for another million years or more and you and I may long since have been dead, there is coming a resurrection. When all that are in the grave shall come forth and they shall hear His voice. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life, but they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. John 5 verses 28 and 29. There's coming an occasion of resurrection. And oh, how we long to be a part of that resurrection to life. Well, we can come forth and hear our Savior say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. Be thou ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joys of thy Lord. To quote Matthew 25, verses 21 and 23. Because of the reality of that resurrection, doesn't it challenge us to appreciate what our Savior taught? In the 11th chapter of John, it was on that occasion that Lazarus had died, a good friend to Jesus. And yet some four days later, when Jesus came to the location where His body had been placed, there was such weeping, there was such sorrow and grief amongst His sisters and amongst others in the community. And yet Jesus simply stood at the entrance and said, Lazarus, come forth. The interesting part of all of that for our lesson tonight is the discussion that Jesus had with Martha in verses 25 and 26 of that chapter. It was Martha who had said, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. Amazingly, following that, even Martha knew, though, that there was coming a resurrection. Jesus said, Believest thou? In terms of that belief for the resurrection, there can be no doubt. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we have this assurance. Just as surely as Jesus was resurrected, He was the guarantee that all of us will be as well. Are you and I at this point prepared for the resurrection unto life? If not, we need to make that correction tonight and make that obedience this very evening. In these chapters in Job tonight, we have from chapters 15 to 21 seen the second cycle of speeches. And in summary, here has been the thought. We've highlighted the fact that there is no release, period, in death except only for the righteous. And we've also learned again the valiant teaching of the Bible's doctrine of the resurrection. That resurrection is a needful thing. Without it, no one would have the proper body to enter into everlasting life. 
Next Sunday evening, we'll pick up with the third cycle of speeches in chapter 22 and find some other presentations that these friends try to make. For tonight, as we each examine ourselves, where do you and I stand before the presence of the God of heaven? Are we in a saved condition? Are we faithfully living as we ought? If not, tonight is the night to make the proper changes, the proper decisions in life. If there might be one in the audience who has never named the sweet name of Jesus as the Son of God, why not tonight? Today indeed is the day of salvation, 2 Corinthians 6 verse 2. And didn't a Hebrew writer say, Harden not your heart as in the provocation. Tonight, if you are in a position of needing to respond publicly, why not do that very thing? If we need to pray with you and for you, we could do that too. If either of those things would be the need of your heart and life tonight, why not let that be known if you would while together we stand and sing the chosen hymn.